Total Maniacs. You've got George. You've got Tom. You've, You've got, got another, another podcast, podcast coming. coming. Cheers, George. Cheers, Tom. So, George, what are we drinking today? Today, we are drinking Blood Orange Blonde, and this is from Brewport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, your current home state. Yes, sir. Bridgeport's not too far away from me, so this is uh, one of the closest local breweries I know of, mm. and I don't think I've ever had a blood orange flavored beer. Mm. This actually says ale with orange juice added. Oh, you know what? I was going to say, it's very refreshing. It's got sort of like, I don't want to use the term like a thickness to it, but it doesn't exactly have the texture of a beer. It's very sweet it for is. a beer. And it's not, it's not harsh, and it's just sweet enough, which is something I really like about it. You know, um, my fiance would love this beer, I think. Oh, sweet. Well, the next time I make my way up there, I'll have to pick up a six-pack to bring down to you Please guys. Please do. Please do, man. Like, uh, of course, she would appreciate it, and I would definitely drink this again. Awesome. Yeah, yeah you really do taste the orange. Yeah, it's very authentic. You know, a lot of, you know, you, you find out a lot that when people are trying to make fruity beers or drinks, they often have, like, orange flavor without having like this has genuine orange juice in it and it makes a world of difference yeah i like this yeah, um, me too. i'm gonna drink this again uh it's actually got a really beautiful can as well which is another thing i appreciate is the art of the can yeah and you know their logo kind of reminds me of starbucks with their siren <laughs> yeah yeah there's a blonde kind of mermaidish girl i can i can see it i'm trying to find what the alcohol content is of this 5-0 oh all right, well, listen, it's not about getting sozzled. It's about enjoying the flavor, so. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, if your beer has that low of an alcohol percentage, it can be purchased over the counter in Russia. <laughs> well, up until 2011, when, <laughs> yes. when they finally recognized beer as an alcoholic beverage, <laughs> it was a soft drink before that. Yeah. This 5% beer, that's a soft drink. Fucking A, man. Okay. And speaking of soft drinks, what are we talking about today, George? <laughs> I like that transition, <laughs> Tom. We are talking about the title track of the very first Judas Priest album. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rockarola. So, you have to go all the way back to 1974 for this one. And the song is noteworthy because Judas Priest has resurrected it for the 50 Heavy Metal Years tour. And when they kicked off the tour on Bloodstock 2021, their first date, they played Rockarola live for the first time since 1976. <laughs> You can't get much more obscure than this song, folks. And just to put that into perspective, in 1974, disco was at the height of its popularity. <laughs> so just to give you a sense of how long this band has been around, it is nuts to think about. Um, Rockarola, though, is a fantastic song. And listening to it again gave me this impression that 
there was always a metal band in Judas Priest that was just dying to get out. You can hear it in this song. This is a pretty interesting song because it has the seeds of things that would become priest signatures later, like the dueling guitar leads of Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing. Yeah, that would become a staple of the band, and they still are. Yeah. Now, Glenn Tipton came into the band on the later side. Most of Rockarola was already written. But this is one out of two songs that Tipton actually did get a songwriting credit. And you can kind of hear it in how Rockarola, the song, has more of a dynamic energy than the other songs on the album do. Another interesting thought before we leave that is um, Al Atkins also has a credit for this album. Sure. Uh, on the uh, track Deep Freeze. Yep. Which is pretty cool. You know, Atkins is obviously like kind of a blip on the radar as far as Judas Priest is concerned. Yeah. But it's interesting to see his contribution to this album. Sure. Because that's how it is with young bands who are starting out. They have their staple of songs that they test out on the road. And these songs have existed in some form or another for years. And they've sort of altered and taken new forms by the time it actually came down for them to lay these tracks down on the album. So it's interesting to think that Priest was a band for about five years on the local touring scene before Rock and Roll came out. And maybe not this song specifically, but some of this material might go back to 1969 and Halford wasn't the first one to sing some of these songs. It's insane to think about. They could have been playing these songs for five years before they finally put them to the recording studio. What's even more interesting, I think, is that they're actually bringing this song back on their 50 Heavy Metal Years tour. Sure. For the first time since 1976. And that's not really something you hear about bands doing pretty often. Dude, my mom was 16 when <laughs> when the last time they played this song. Yeah. Your, your mom was 16 and this band had never set foot in the USA. Jesus, So dude. it's not like she would have had an opportunity to hear it live anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah. dude, it's like, it's, it's crazy to think about. Sure. This is the title track on the very first Judas Priest album. Why would the band not want to play that live? Well, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that Rockarola was not a particularly popular record right from the beginning. Released in 1974 on a very unsupportive record label, it only sold a few thousand copies. I know album sales don't really mean anything anymore, but... Take our word for it. This was extremely low numbers, sales numbers at the time. And the band members pretty much lived in poverty, sleeping in their tour van in the freezing cold, which shows you exactly how much money they made from Rockarola. Probably pennies, man. I mean, you know, that really is the truest epitome of the starving artist. There's something to be said, though, that these guys just kept going with it and they didn't give up on it, you know? 
Right. They knew that they had something to offer, so they stuck with their careers as musicians. And eventually, as we all know, we all know the story of Priest, they would make it big, but this early material didn't really come with them when they made it big. No, it doesn't seem like it. Um, so one thought I had is that you have to consider that if they were like on the touring circuit for five years, you also have to consider that there might be some songs that were never put to records, ever, that have just been lost to the dustbin of history. Oh, well, that's definitely the case. And there is evidence of Priest playing some songs live that never made it to album. That's something for future episodes. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Speaking purely on behalf of myself, though, I think Rock and Roll is a banger. Sure. And it has some sort of energy to it that it has a forward driving momentum that might sound like a cliche because I use that phrase a lot but it's something that I value you know when a song can keep my attention for the entire time because it has a power and a sort of purpose behind it And that's the thing, too, isn't it, is that this is a very interesting song to listen to. I can't say that I've heard anything like it. So for me, even though the song is 50 years old, it still sounds new to me. I've never heard anything like it. It almost reminds me of maybe George Thorogood in a way. Kind of like got that aggressive, bluesy, rockin' sound to it. Yes. Now, it's interesting you say that because... A lot of early heavy metal was based on a sort of bluesy style of rock. That's true. Because blues had a little bit more of a meaner edge to it than you might see in some other types of music that were popular at the time. Yeah, man. You could even say that, you know, like Mississippi, like Delta blues was almost the metal of its day. Um, you know, everyone's heard the infamous story of Robert Johnson going to the crossroads to sell his soul to Satan for his amazing guitar abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that sort of spirit of blues. It's called the blues for a reason because a lot of these early blues guitar players were, they grew up or not grew up during, but they lived through the Great Depression. And the blues was their way of expressing their grief over the insane levels of poverty and adversity that they were experiencing in that time. Sure. And now the members of Judas Priest, and if you've read Rob and KK's books, you know they both grew up in not, maybe not poverty, but definitely the lower end of the social spectrum. Mm. And this we're talking post-World War II Great Britain, when the country was trying to recover from all the damage it had suffered in the war. And at the time, a lot of families didn't really have much. They had just about enough to survive and very little more. And that's the kind of families that Rob and KK grew up in. So it's that sort of down and hard life kind of vibes that come from blues that the members of Priest 
probably related to mm. and that influenced their early heavy metal. And you know, it's funny because if you l- listen to the stories of the guys, like the early metal from England and up to the new wave of British heavy metal, you find out these guys really did come from, I don't want to use the word desolate circumstances, but definitely all like you said, on the lower end of the poverty spectrum, you know, everyone knows that Tony Iommi worked in a factory when, you know, before he left to be with Black Sabbath full time. Sure. And Rob Halford used to walk by those factories on the way to school every single day. He tells stories about how the kids would basically cover up their faces with a handkerchief and run across the path of the smoke as fast as they can mm-hmm. to limit their exposure. Yeah, it, this was definitely during an era of industrialism. Well, maybe not like industrialization, but you know, it's like factories probably outnumbered everything, and most people in the cities would work at the factories. So it was almost inescapable, I would say. Yeah. And because of all the smoke and smog in the area, it ended up being a sort of very dour and gloomy place for kids to grow up in that day. And if it weren't for that sort of foreboding vibe from all the industrial factories, you might not have gotten heavy metal. Yeah, man, that's a really fair point. And it's sort of the product of its time under the right circumstances. And I think Rockarola is reflective of a certain type of aggression that probably existed for these young men. You could really hear it in the music because Rockarola may not be heavy in the sense that we think of heavy today, but at the time, you know, you've got some pretty aggressive guitar work, a lot of galloping, a lot of interesting chord progressions going on there. The riff has a serious punch to it, Mm. even more so live, as we've continually referenced with the band Tuning to D, and this riff really gains a lot in the way that they play it now. definitely a certain abrasiveness to it where they weren't really concerned with appeasing people they were like you know even on this early release they're like this is our music and if you can't handle it you're the problem it's not us Mm -hmm. um and i really appreciate that even in the beginning you could tell that the seeds of a heavy metal band had already been planted sure and There's a groovy riff that carries the sound of hard rock from that era, but the twin guitar leads on full display was something pretty new. Yeah, especially Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing experimenting with their parallel guitar leads that you hear at about the um, halfway point of the song, where you've got one of them playing... See, what's happening is that they're playing the same notes, but they're playing them at different octaves. So Tipton being the lead guitar player was probably playing the higher notes and then Downing playing the lower one and it creates a really interesting sound. And again, I think that it has a certain abrasiveness to it that 
it's I wouldn't exactly describe it as harsh, but it's certainly not easy listening. You know what I mean? Right. And after the first chorus, Glenn and KK just start going at it and they keep it going well into the second verse, trading the leads in between Rob's lines and they continue that into the second chorus. So Rockerola, it seems like a simple song at first, but if you listen closely, there's a lot of great guitar work going on behind the scenes. Yeah, man, and that's something, like, listen, Priest has always been, like, a guitar band, I would say. And this song is a perfect example of that. You know, I would say that the... The blueprint for the band has always been the same. You've got the incredible guitar work and Halford's soaring vocals and a really good bass and drum line behind it supporting the three of them. Because for a long time, they really were the stars of the show. You know, Priest is all about the guitar work. You know, and I think I've said this in another podcast of ours, is that they really were, I would say, probably the first legendary guitar duo in metal. I would not disagree with you on that, my friend. So, George, on a personal level, what do you think of Rockerola when you listen to it on like what does it make what does it invoke in you? So, that's a good question because there's all the hype behind Rockerola how it's a sort of bastard child that Judas Priest didn't acknowledge for so long and is it really that terrible of, of an album? Mm, it's okay. Uh I would say that this song is certainly one of the best from it. It's one of the highlights. I would say that it's a serviceable album, but it's, you know, I guess there's a reason they kind of disappeared into the background, especially, you know, when British Steel and Screaming for Vengeance came out, which were way more well-received than Rockerola was. You know, when you are, especially, you got to consider, we were talking before about how, this was a band that they were really down on their luck for a very long time. And they never really seemed happy with the album. Yeah. It only took them one year to put out their follow-up, Sad Wings of Destiny. Mm. And Rob was literally saying in interviews, 
fans can go burn their copies of Rock and Roll. <laughs> and they said, that's not who we are anymore. Mm. And I guess they were a band that was struggling to find their voice, mm. struggling to really say what they want to say. But that's kind of what makes Rockerola so interesting to listen to is it's a band who's really trying to figure it out and they're throwing every idea at the wall to see what sticks and they didn't quite have it yet, but they were getting there. And especially with the better songs on the album, like this title track, and you can hear the sort of future elements of what would make Priest so great starting to form. I've mentioned in other episodes how Priest has, you can't accuse them of being stagnant. And one thing I love is right from the very beginning, they didn't want to sound like anyone else. And this album, I think, speaks to that spirit that they're trying a bunch of different things and they haven't really gotten their sound down. It's this is not what you would describe as a well-refined effort. Like you said, they're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And that sort of like pioneering spirit has always been with the band right from the very beginning. And in that sense, I would say that this is still a very admirable, serviceable effort on their part. Sure. And for my part, I love that they've brought this song back live. It's giving new life and new attention to an era of the band that previously never got any recognition. And the way that they've taken the song and added to it and evolved it to make it fit in with the way that Judas Priest sounds today, they've done a fantastic job giving, uh, giving Richie Faulkner a nice little solo and a new outro to close out the song and the way that he does the parallel harmony as you were describing before with Andy Sneap in the bridge it really sounds fantastic actually quite surprised at how good it sounds live nowadays i was very intrigued to hear it when i found out that they had brought it back for their 50 years of heavy metal tour and i gotta say man they really didn't disappoint it is a banger of a song and it's got a certain energy to it and i really like that they are breathing life back into that era of priest and acknowledging it because you have to pay respect to your roots. And you know what? For better or for worse, this is the first Judas Priest album. And 
if they hadn't gone through this experimental phase and kept going with it and really tried to find out who they were, we may not have Judas Priest. You're right. You summed that up quite well, my friend. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I have some ideas every now and again. (laughs) (laughs) That you do. Well, Tom, thanks for wrapping that up so nicely. Mm. And hey, Metal Maniacs, get at us on the usual places. Metal Gods Podcast at gmail.com. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we got those. And until next time, stay locked in. And keep defending the faith. <laughs>